You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, broadcasting from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, coming to you from Maryland. Always good to be back with you, Katie. How are you doing today? Doing great. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, You know, international travel is beginning to pick up again, which is nice. I'm looking forward to uh, getting back to Asia soon, actually, for the Shangri-La Dialogue, which I know we used to talk a lot about on this podcast uh, in uh, 2019 and prior, so it's uh, it's very much going to be good to be back on the ground. Uh, so very uh, exciting, yeah. Uh, and you know, there's uh, obviously it's going to be a great opportunity to uh, to take pulse uh, to take the pulse in the region, uh, catch up with uh, many friends and colleagues that I haven't seen in a long time. Of course, uh, as many of these in-person events uh, now returning uh, have been a great opportunity to do. Um, it is good to see people. <laughs> it is. It really is. I think. I think there's a there's a value that's uh, sort of ineffable to uh, in person interactions. At least. At least that's my sense. Uh, in any case, um, you know, let's uh, sort of give our listeners a little bit of a uh, of an overview of what we're going to chat about today. So this this episode is actually, I think, a, a direct response to some emails uh, and and Twitter DMs I got in in April, uh, really asking us to talk about the Chinese draft agreement that leaked uh, with the Solomon Islands, uh, which is certainly, I think, um, maybe shockwaves is a little too heavy, but but certainly I think spooked a lot of people in Washington. Uh, we had a, a U.S. delegation uh, led by White House and State Department officials go out to the Solomon Islands in April. And um, some of our listeners uh, probably haven't thought a lot about the Solomon Islands in the past, because frankly speaking, uh, this is not a country that the United States has traditionally given a lot of attention to. But when mm-hmm. China has a security agreement with a country in the current geopolitical environment, that tends to sort of bump you up the notch of, of relevancy in Washington. And I think that's certainly been the case. Um, of course, uh, longer term subscribers and listeners of the podcast might recall the discussion that we had a few months ago uh, in, in late 2021 about the domestic political unrest in the Solomon Islands, which, you know, we, we sort of, I think, do need to talk about the domestic component in a bit, Katie. But, uh, you mm-hmm. know, I think I'll, I think I'll leave that to you. But but let me just briefly um, give an overview of, of what exactly we're talking about today. So there was a leaked draft of a security agreement between China and the Solomon Islands. Uh, so according to the reports, uh, nobody, uh, no journalists have, as far as I know, uh, read the agreement or published the contents of the agreement. Um, but according to the leaked uh, sort of uh, language in that draft agreement, we don't know what the final agreement really contains. Uh, China agreed to send uh, the People's Armed Police, uh, military personnel, and sort of um, general law enforcement apparatuses to the Solomon Islands to um, protect sort of the the livelihoods of, you know, according to the agreement, the livelihoods of of Solomon Islanders in in Haniara, primarily the capital, uh, and that the draft text also implies that China would be able to use its forces to protect Chinese personnel. Uh, and then there's been sort of longstanding concern, and this is, I think, primarily the concern in Washington, that this agreement includes a hidden or not so hidden provision for a People's Liberation Army naval base in the Solomon Islands, which is is something that I think has really given the United States the most pause, because um, traditionally, since the end of the Second World War, the U.S. has seen the Southern Pacific uh, as a relatively uncontested area geographically, um, an area where the U.S. has enjoyed the influence of its uh, allies and partners in the form of Australia and New Zealand. And so seeing China build uh, inroads into this region is is a source of concern. Um, now, I do want to note that the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands, Manasseh Sogavare, has um, rejected this idea that 
there's any idea of, of building a um, or hosting a Chinese naval base. Uh, you know, this the dynamics here actually remind me a lot about the Cambodian denials about about the Chinese naval base. Um, you know, the broader picture here is that over the last 10 years, China is becoming much more expeditionary with its military activities, uh, including with the naval base in Djibouti, which was its first base um, overseas uh, in general. Traditionally, China has not looked to go overseas and set up military bases and China uh, generally issues alliances, as a matter of fact. Uh, it's only official treaty alliances with North Korea, uh, which is something that the Chinese leadership doesn't really talk about a lot these days anyways. Um, so that's the bigger picture, uh, which is that the Solomon Islands, uh, a strategically important region for the United States uh, in, in the Pacific uh, that the U.S. has gotten used to over decades, not having a major geopolitical adversary contest, uh, is now being somewhat contested, at least if the interpretation of this agreement is that it would open the door to a Chinese naval agreement. But, Katie, I think here's where we need to talk a, lit, a, a little about the domestic political piece, because as I said in talking about the draft agreement, the big emphasis that... Um, we've sort of seen in the draft text is about this notion of law enforcement, about deploying the people's armed police. And don't get me wrong, that's significant in terms of what it tells us about the kinds of steps that China is willing to take to protect overseas Chinese investment and businesses. But I think to understand why this is a feature of this agreement, uh, I think we need to rehash what happened uh, last year in the Solomon Islands and the broader context with the Solomon Islands changing its relationship from recognizing the Republic of China or Taiwan uh, to Beijing uh, in 2019. So do you want to sort of bring us up to speed on on the domestic piece here? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if we go back to November 2021, in late November, there was a, a several day period in which there were riots in the Solomon Islands capital, Aniara. Uh, we discussed that in a podcast in December. Um, so I would refer anyone back to that episode for a greater rehashing of this. Uh, but, you know, it really pitted the opposition, um, which is largely rooted in the Solomon Islands' most populous island, which is Malaita, which is different from Guadalcanal, which is where Aniara is. Um, and, you know, the opposition was calling for the resignation of Sogavare and was criticizing his administration's China policies predominantly, in particular that 2019 switch of recognition from Taiwan to China. Peacekeepers were flown in from Australia and New Zealand, which incidentally, some of those uh, Australian and New Zealand peacekeepers were still apparently guarding parliament when the China deal was being announced in April. Um, and so, you know, the Sogavari government has, like you, like you mentioned, said, you know, there's no provision for a Chinese military base. The caveat is we don't actually know what's in the final draft. Uh, China does not publicize the details of its security agreements. So it's taking Sogavari at his word um, and shaking China at their word. Which I, I don't think they've said very much publicly about this, um, you know. And so Gavari said, you know, this deal with China doesn't negate other security agreements like those that Solomon's has with Australia and New Zealand. Um, I, I thought uh, some of his language was pretty pretty strident. You know, he called it utter nonsense. Uh, the quote, unfortunate perception held by many leaders that the region's security is threatened by the presence of China in the region. Um, now, certainly, I think as you went over some of the, the well, I think we should dive into the international re reactions, but there's a clear domestic division over the China issue. Uh, the opposition 
very firmly opposed the 2019 switch from Taiwan to China and has kind of wrapped itself around that issue. Um, you know, the opposition leaders have um, were allegedly might have been the people who leaked the draft. Um, it's unclear exactly who leaked the draft agreement, but the suspicion is heavily on the, the opposition. Um, you know, Sogavari says that this deal reflects Solomon Islands national interests. The opposition says, you know, this is just one step away from from being a Chinese colony. Um, you know, I think the sort of intertwining of the international with the local dynamics is pretty interesting, but it also sets up, I think, a pretty dangerous uh, mix in which you have the Solomon Islands government under Sogavari somewhat as a Chinese proxy and the opposition as somewhat as a U.S. proxy. Uh, I'm not saying that that's a, a fact that's that's sort of a reading of this is you have s- certainly factions within the Solomon Islands that lean toward the U.S. and factions that lean towards towards China on this issue, and one can imagine how that could get even more complex down the road. Say there's another large opposition protest in in you know opposition to the government's Chinese policies, and the government calls China instead of Canberra, um, and then. You know, what if the the Chinese, um, you know, what what if that gets out of hand? Because mm-hmm. you know, among the the buildings that were burned during the riots were Chinese businesses. So there are Chinese interests in the Solomons and and sort of a, a domestic yet international facet there. So, you know, I, I think the this security agreement coming after that unrest, I would be super interested about the the timeline. Um, you know, I, I think I read that the opposition leader, Matthew, while I had, you know, said that he they knew about this deal last year, um, that it was being discussed. Um, and, and I'm curious about that timeline. Um, but I think we should bring this back to geopolitics, because that's what we what we do here on this podcast as much as i drag us into local politics all the time um you know what what were the what was your read on sort of the international reactions Uh, the new zealand and australia had pretty sharp reactions uh the united states also reacted very very um interestingly Uh, i do want to add one more sort of interesting factoid in the United States's Indo-Pacific strategy, which was released in February, uh, was uh, unveiled at uh, in in Fiji with a visit by Anthony Blinken. One of the things that was mentioned is the United States was aiming to reopen an embassy in the Solomon Islands, which it hasn't had since the 90s. Um, and so uh, you mentioned that the United States has sort of seen the Pacific as its ocean. Um, but I think that policy highlighted that the United States hasn't been paying that much attention to the Pacific and is sort of finally waking up uh, to the fact that active engagement is necessary. Exactly. No, I think I think that's a great point. Um, and yeah, I, I think in this particular case, the domestic politics of this are, are incredibly important in terms of understanding the geopolitical context. Because, I mean, look, I mean, to put a finer point on it, I think there's a big kind of perception gap here, which is that, okay, you know, I mean, let me, let me start with Sogavari, right? I think what's interesting here is that he has a clear interest in this deal, which is that having the People's Armed Police and Chinese law enforcement entities on the Solomon Islands uh, is actually going to help him stay in power and and withstand domestic unrest. And so that is sort of a very self-interested thing. And for China, um, you know, I think I think we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. Uh, I mean, really, I mean, what we've been doing this podcast for more than eight years. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, since the Belt and Road Initiative was announced, which was around the time I started doing this podcast, um, I think one of the big lessons that China has learned <laughs> is that... Um, 
domestic political changes in many of the recipient countries for BRI grants and projects can cause trouble. Uh, I think this has mm -hmm. happened in Sri Lanka, in Malaysia with the change to Mahathir. Uh, it happened in Pakistan with the change from Nawaz Sharif to Imran Khan. Uh, certainly in the Solomon Islands with the unrest. Um, in, in Pakistan, I mean, there's been a series of attacks by Baloch militants on, on Chinese workers. And so... China is sort of taking a much more direct interest in protecting overseas Chinese workers and, and businesses. Uh, and, and of course, um, this is also, I think, factors into how the, the Communist Party broadly sees Chinese communities overseas as, as sort of uh, something where China has a unique responsibility to offer protection. So everything I just talked about, I mean, has very little to do with sort of, um, you know, security competition and sort of, um, mm -hmm. you know, new Cold War grand strategy, uh, so to speak. It's really about um, protecting investments, protecting Chinese citizens. And for Sogavari, it's about uh, having a powerful patron uh, that will take an interest in keeping him in power, which traditionally hasn't been something that China does, right? I mean, the Chinese uh, talk a lot about non-interference in international affairs. And, you know, it's not like Russia sort of intervening in Syria to keep Bashar al-Assad in power. Obviously, that's an extreme example, not not exactly what's happening here. But, but China traditionally hasn't hasn't done that, uh, especially in in uh, relatively far flung locales like the Solomon Islands. Mm -hmm. But the other side is that the reaction in Australia, New Zealand and the United States has, I think, seen this development firmly through a, a, a geopolitical lens, which is that um, this is an area that we didn't really have to think about too hard for a while. And, and here I say, I mean, I'm really thinking of the United States. I think Australia and New Zealand have very much. Uh, um, seen this part of the world um, as as much more salient to their interests, given that it's directly in their neighborhood. Yeah, um, and I'll just yeah. interject. Sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but you know, Australia, New Zealand's had peacekeepers in the Solomon Islands into the two thousands. Yeah. Um, Solomon Islands had a civil conflict in the in the nineties and and into the early two thousands, and and so Australia, New Zealand, certainly more than the United States have actively been involved in the Solomon Islands, and I think the United States used them sort of as as sort of extensions of itself in that realm. Right. Right. No, I think I, th I think that's terrific context. I mean, I think I think the bigger picture here is that this this uncomfortable dynamic that is now facing um, the United States, Australia, New Zealand and the Southern Pacific is, I think, a logical consequence of Chinese power rising and China's interests um, expanding around the world. I mean, China is doing mm -hmm. business everywhere. Chinese overseas investment is exploding. Uh, and that's, I think, really the dynamic that's led to this. And it's uncomfortable. It's it's unresolved. And obviously, I think the the prospect of a naval base is not something that we can we can write off, right? Even if it's not in the agreement, um, it, it might one day. I mean, when you have this kind of a relationship that, that begins to deepen and you have mm -hmm. uh, Chinese law enforcement activities picking up, it's not difficult to imagine then in the future that that opens the door to the PLA Navy establishing a naval base. So I think that's the primary concern here. But certainly I think the bigger picture here is that this is what the world begins to look like when when um, when China simply grows in, in, in its ambitions and its scopes for uh, its overseas activity. This is the sort of thing that people were predicting really uh, in 2012 and 2013 uh, when Xi Jinping mm -hmm. came into power and when he spoke in late 2013. Um, in uh, Indonesia and Kazakhstan about the about the uh, about the new Silk Road and the maritime um, and the maritime Silk Road um, leading up to the Belt and Road Initiative more broadly, uh, and so this is really I think I think the bigger picture here. So um, should we switch gears, Katie, and talk a little bit about the Australian federal elections? Yes, we should because um, they 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 also feature prominently China. Exactly, uh, and they're about to happen, and uh, so you know just. Uh, um, 
you know, it's probably a good opportunity, actually, Katie, to sort of emphasize the the magazine, uh, which uh, covers this in some detail. Yes. So in the the May issue, which came out about two weeks ago, but is still fresh and great, uh, we have an article uh, from uh, Natasha Kassam and Jennifer Sue, which covers the China narrative within the Australian election. And the reason that they focused on this is, you know, both the uh, coalition government led by the Liberal Party and the Labour, uh, the opposition party in, in Parliament, uh, have both very much focused on China and security issues as sort of central campaign narratives, while at the same time, you know, polling indicates that what most Australians would like their politicians to be talking about are things like climate change um, and, and, and the economy. Um, but that China narrative, and it sort of had, had certainly earlier in the campaign and, and into this month, uh, the election is on the 21st, so it's it's coming up, um, kind of devolved into sort of an ugly uh, accusations being traded of, of each side being sort of bought off by China and, and each side trying to be stronger on, on the China issue. Um, while the core issues remain somewhat unaddressed, you know, Australia and China have not had high level diplomatic contact in two years. That is extraordinary for two um, countries that share a region uh, to have no uh, contact for, for two years at, at the upper levels is pretty significant. Um, and yet the discussions of policy are not particularly nuanced in sort of what, what should be done differently. Um, and certainly... You know, I, I think the election itself, who knows how it's going to turn out um, in, in particular because it's a parliamentary system. So, you know, there's there's possibilities for uh, the liberals to lose seats but remain in power through a coalition um, or for labor to be able to form a coalition and, and, and take over uh, government. Uh, we don't know how that's going to turn out quite yet. And it could take some time, which I think is interesting. I believe um, uh, Biden will be in is it Japan and Korea uh, in, yes. in the coming days? And, and the Australian leader, whoever that happens to be, is expected to attend. I don't know if I, we talked about this before, but I don't know if you've looked to see if there's any news on who's going to go, because um, it's possible Australia doesn't have a prime minister then. Um, all of this to say is that, you know, the China narrative is really powerful in Australia. Almost every issue can kind of be linked back to China in some form or another. Um, but whether either of the major parties or really any of the independents have any new ideas about how to approach China is kind of unclear to me. Right. And I guess the, you know, the bigger picture is that in in most um, wealthy democracies, uh, attempts to make elections about national security issues, uh, you know, be it China and Australia it's or North Korea. It's usually really difficult. And it is difficult. Is a, yeah, because a... <laughs> voters care about, you know, they care about real estate prices, jobs, inflation, mm -hmm. COVID-19, uh, domestic issues. Uh, so even even though that this, you know, the, the, the salience of China and the Australian election, I think, is notable because you know, both parties have really sort of leaned into it. Um, and, and it's going to be interesting to see if this is a, a broader trend that we begin to see yeah. uh, spread around the region. I think I, I would just have us end on, yes, they've leaned into it, but they haven't really distinguished themselves very well in having different policies necessarily. Um, so that's, that I think is kind of an interesting pitch. It's, it's sort of a vote for me. I'll do basically the same thing as the other guy. Um, and, and that's, not necessarily refreshing right well yeah I, I think i think the broader trajectory of australian policy on china uh is, is much more likely to see continuity rather than change mm -hmm. sort of the recalibration that happened after 
you know, 2016, 2017 or so, uh, particularly after the 19th Party Congress in China and 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 the and the significant decline in in China Australia relations is is likely a a long term uh, development. Um, Absolutely. But uh, Katie, let's let's end it there for today. Uh, I think you you already previewed for listeners what we may end up coming uh, to talk about, depending on what happens, which is uh, Biden's trip to Northeast Asia, to Korea and Japan. Uh, we have a huge COVID-19 outbreak now in North Korea. We're going to have a quad leader summit. Uh, and then the Shangri-La dialogue is coming up. So it's certainly going to be a busy few weeks in Asian geopolitics. Uh, but we'll be back to talk about that soon. So uh, thanks for joining me. Mm-hmm. I look forward to a hot Asian summer. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so for listeners, uh, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. Uh, if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, please do that. It really helps the show. Uh, and as always, uh, like I said at the outset, this episode was really based on listener demand. So if you have suggestions for a topic that you'd like us to address on a future episode, uh, please feel free to reach out to either me or Katie, and we'll be very happy to uh, consider that. So thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back soon. Thank you.